Good morning. Welcome again. Glad to have you with us, especially if you're visiting. We are in Psalm 129 this morning. It's on page 519 if you're in one of the blue church Bibles. Psalm 129. I'll read it. A song of ascents. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hands, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, The blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we once again ask for your blessing upon this reading and the preaching of your word so that we might see and trust and enjoy Jesus, he who has come into our world to taste our sadness, your very presence among us. Draw us into him and in him draw us into you, we pray in his name. Amen. We keep going through our series on the Psalms of Ascents. This is a set of 15 psalms uh, towards the end of the Psalter that are written against the backdrop of Israelite pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem three times a year for festivals. Uh, They probably sang these psalms as they went up to Jerusalem uh, to celebrate all the ways that God had rescued them throughout their history and to force themselves to remember it and to, to embody it in their worship to God at those festivals. But we've been saying in this series that the Psalms of Ascents have a broader significance than just pilgrimage to Jerusalem for festivals. They also are wrestling with and expressing what it means for God's people to be a pilgrim people. People who are on pilgrimage from this world into the next world. Into what the Bible calls the New Jerusalem. uh, Which is the realm of God's new creation. This realm an arena of God's restoration and redemption of all things. And so with their focus on pilgrimage, these psalms fit very well with the church season of Advent, which we start today. During Advent, the church around the world reorients itself around the coming of God's King, Jesus. The word Advent is just from a Latin word that means arrival or coming. Uh, We are looking back to the first coming of Christ, especially his humiliating birth, his humiliating incarnation as human. But the season of Advent is also a time to reorient ourselves around the second coming of God's King Jesus. When we are also looking forward, looking forward to the time in the future when Jesus will return to earth, no longer in humiliation, but in glorious triumph. As pilgrims, God's people are eagerly making their way, however slowly, toward the unending joy that God will graciously give us in the new Jerusalem. Uh, We will be there enjoying this joy forever and ever, not because we've earned it. The Bible is quite clear that we can never earn 
God's favor. Uh, We're going to talk next week in Psalm 130 about how wonderful it is to enjoy God's forgiveness. But the the only reason we'll be there in the New Jerusalem is because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. Last week in Psalms 127 and 128, we saw how even in this sad world, God already generously gives out his blessings to a fallen and broken world. Uh, And we saw in those Psalms that he particularly blesses the world in and through work and through the family. But here in Psalm 129, we are once again, in these Psalms, we are once again being reminded of how painful life in this world can be, particularly for people who know that this world, or this world in its current form at least, is not our true home. How painful it is to be wandering through a world that is not our final home. This psalm is focusing especially on the pain and sorrow that come with facing hostile opposition from the rest of the world. But its bigger point for us this morning is that we can and we should be trusting God to do what's right through all of it. Not just focusing on how painful and hard it is, but most of all focusing on who God is and on how much you can trust Him. So our first point is verses 1 to 4, where the psalm shows us what it looks like to know and to feel that God righteously deals with his suffering people. God righteously deals with his suffering people. The first couple lines are what we call a lament. A lament. This is a prayerful, worshipful expression of sadness to God. A lament is a prayerful expression of sadness to God. A great many of the Psalms are laments. uh, And this shows us wonderfully that God wants us to come to him in our sadness and to speak to him of it. This lament is about the suffering that God's people have long experienced at the hands of others. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. God's people, Israel, have been oppressed and opposed for their entire life on earth ever since their youth. Beginning with the murderous jealousy of Cain against Abel, the human race has always been marked by opposition from those who reject God's rule against those who welcome God's rule. Noah and his entire family were mocked and despised by the whole human race. Abraham and his family were rejected and pushed around by most everybody around them, including many of their own family members. Abraham's descendants, the Israelites, were enslaved in Egypt by the world's greatest empire at the time. And then even after they arrived in the promised land, they were being constantly harassed by tyrants and thugs. And then later, God's own faithful people dwindled to a tiny minority of the broader nation of Israel as they spited and murdered God's prophets. Eventually, the nation of Israel ended up in lonely exile in Babylon. And even after they returned home, they continued to face great opposition, both from within and from without. Jesus himself, we've been saying, is the true and the final Israel. And he himself was rejected and scorned by nearly everybody around him. And then after his resurrection, the early church faced great suffering, even as it also was explosively growing. And then beyond the accounts in the Bible itself, we can look all through church history, we can look all around the world today at the church 
And we can see all kinds of ways that God's people have been hated and opposed, sometimes even to death. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. You can see here the use of this broad, vague pronoun, they. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. It shows us that God's people have always been and always will be opposed by what might as well be the entire world. Uh, Fill in the blank. It's just one giant amorphous blob out there of opposition. Uh, I'm sure some of us here today have experienced a measure of this in our own lives, maybe a great deal of it. Uh, Maybe your own family or your own colleagues or your neighbors keeping you at arm's length, talking about you behind your back, overlooking you for a promotion, sneering at you for your outdated and even dangerous beliefs. Some of us have faced much worse than that. At the end of verse 1, God's people are commanded to say it again. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Don't just say it once, the psalm says. Say it at least twice. We can and we should lament the pain and the sadness of living out of step with the world, of living in a different key because of all the rejection and the hostility that it brings. Biblical spirituality does not call God's people to a stoic indifference to pain and suffering. But at the same time, it certainly does not call God's people to bitterly fixate on it uh, within our own heart as a kind of dark echo chamber where we're feeling really sorry for ourselves all the time. Instead, God calls us and even commands us to lament to Him, to grieve before God and to God about all the ways It's hard to follow God in a world like this. But look at the second half of verse 2. They have not prevailed against me. Uh, I've mentioned before you this great book called The Coddling of the American Mind. Uh, One of the points of that book is that Americans, especially young Americans, have so broadened the definitions of trauma and oppression to the point where now just about anything painful uh, can be called oppression or trauma. Uh, Part of the point of this book is that a lot of the reason that Americans are so unhappy and why young people especially are so unhappy is because they increasingly believe that oppression and suffering inescapably define you, that they inescapably destroy you. But here in this psalm, in the midst of serious lament about genuine oppression you can see that God calls us to see that suffering and even trauma do not have the final word. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. For all the pain and the opposition, in the end, God has never allowed any of it to triumph over his people. The Apostle Paul looks at all kinds of suffering in the middle of his letter to the Romans, spiritual sufferings, earthly sufferings, and he says, in all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. God rules over all things, even the darkest things. He uses all of it for the good of those who love him. And as he does that, he reveals his own wisdom and beauty He shows us how much we can trust him through it all. But even so, it's true, God rules over all of it, all the oppression, all the suffering of our lives can never define us or destroy us in the end. But even so, verse 3 reminds us that it really is awful. 
It really is awful. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. This image here is that the oppressors of God's people are running their plows down the exposed and prostrate backs of God's vulnerable people. Uh, It's perhaps something like our image that we have about riding roughshod over somebody. The point is that the suffering is horrifically vicious. We can and we should recall that God has never allowed his people's enemies to overwhelm them. But even so, the psalm shows us that we also need to see that it really is horrible. But verse 4 is the hinge of the whole entire poem. It says, The Lord is righteous. He's cut the cords of the wicked. Cutting the cords probably refers to God slicing the ropes that would have tied an animal to the plow with the farmer. Uh, God slicing the ropes so that the oppressors can no longer run their plows along, along the people's back. The point is that God puts an end to oppression. That God rescues his suffering people. That he delivers them. When the angel Gabriel told Mary that she was going to be the mother of God's Messiah, he commanded her to name him Jesus. Because the name Jesus means God saves. God saves. The Lord saves his people because he's righteous. The ultimate reason that oppression and suffering don't and can't have the final word for God's people is because our God is the righteous one. He always does what's right for his people, for his name, for the world. It means that God is always reliable in his goodness and his wisdom and his justice. No matter how it might feel to us or how it might seem to us, the larger reality is that God is righteous. He's doing what's right and good. The character and the nature of God have to be at the very center of our hearts and our minds if we're going to face the horrors of this world with anything like the kind of lament that God calls us to here. We should neither despair, seeing no way forward, but we should also not have an indifference that refuses to see how terrible it really is. We lament, but we lament in hope. Because we know that God's the righteous one. God has always been righteous in the past and dealing with his suffering people. And he always will be. God's not going to forget about you. You're not going to be the first example of God deciding to forget about his people and to do what's wrong to them. Sometimes we can become so arrogant uh, and so narrow-minded in our own suffering. We think, I'm it. God's going to forget about me. This is going to be the time. But at verse 5, we shift to see another way that God's righteous. Uh, He's righteous, not just in dealing with his suffering people, but he's also righteous in dealing with his flourishing enemies. God's compassion, verses 1 to 3, and God's wrath, now verses 5 to 8, both his compassion and his wrath are both extensions of his righteousness. Verse 4. This is why I said verse 4 is the hinge of the whole poem. Look at the prayer. It starts in verse 5. The word for this is an imprecatory prayer. 
an imprecatory prayer. That means that somebody is asking God to bring down judgment and curses on their enemies and on God's enemies. Uh, There are a lot of these in the Bible. This is a very mellow one. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms, nor do those who pass by say the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Now, many people, including many Christians, are very uncomfortable with the idea of God being wrathful. A lot of people, including, again, a lot of Christians, think that God's wrath is incompatible with God's love. Living in the mushy and sentimental society that we do, we easily equate love with unconditional acceptance. We quickly equate love with non-judgmentalism. And even though uh, all of us under the right circumstances, and there's a lot of them, even though all of us are quick to bitterly fixate on how other people have wronged us, many people think that God can't really be angry. God can't really be wrathful, especially against me. Uh, Me and all my innocence, me and all of my good intentions, me and all of my trying my hardest. We think, no, really, God can't be angry. I can be angry at all kinds of people, but God can't be. And so when we come across these biblical prayers where we ask God to bring disaster on the wicked, we don't really know what to do with them. Many Christians wrongly think that these kinds of prayers are for a different time. They're for a bygone era. Uh, Something for those suspicious Old Testament people back then when God was really wigged out and mad before he mellowed out and learned to be a lot more nice. But these prayers are for us too. The New Testament is filled with prayers and hopes and promises for God to carry out his wrath on evil, not just in the abstract, but carrying out his wrath on evil people. Jesus himself, the perfect example of loving one's enemies, Jesus himself speaks more often and more vividly and more terrifyingly about God's judgment than anybody else in the Bible. These prayers remind us that evil is real and that God despises it. We can and we should pray for God's judgment on his enemies, even as we also seek to love our enemies, like Jesus commanded us, even as we also pray for our enemies, like Jesus commanded us, praying especially that they would turn to Christ and faith and repentance, which of course would mean not that there was no judgment, but instead that, like us, their judgment fell on Jesus on the cross. Verse 5 shows us that we need to be realistic about the fact that God and his people really do have hateful enemies, both human and demonic. We should not bury our heads in the sand about this. We should not tell ourselves that the only reason that churches or Christians might have enemies must be because they've made them for themselves by doing something stupid or wrong. Instead, we can and we should be angry about evil and injustice in the world, and especially evil and injustice against God and his people. 
Uh, I started reading recently the Odyssey for the first time in a long time. And it starts out with Odysseus' son uh, getting old enough to where he realizes what's going on around him. Uh, if you know the story of the Odyssey, the story is that Odysseus goes off to fight war against Troy for 10 years. And then he spends another 10 years trying to get back home. And that in the meantime, a bunch of suitors have shown up, assuming that he's dead. Uh, and they're all uh, oogling his uh, wife, trying to make moves on her. And while they're doing that, they're eating all the food, and they're drinking all the wine, and they're partying every day around him. And so it starts out with Odysseus' son, who's now a teenager, realizing what's happening around him, what's been happening his entire life, and how angry he is about what they're doing. It would be wrong for Odysseus' son to say, ah, who cares? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that these guys are making moves on my mom that they're consuming everything that my father worked for. It's right for him to be angry about what they're doing. The whole climax of that story is Odysseus returning in wrath and destroying the suitors. It's a great story. We should be angry too about evil and injustice. But we are often angry in all kinds of ways that we shouldn't be, and we're not angry in all kinds of ways that we should be. And so these prayers help focus our anger in the right direction. To pray for God's wrath on his enemies is ultimately to put our anger into his perfectly just and wise hands. Uh, The Apostle Paul, uh, in another spot in his letter to the Romans, he's talking all about what it means to be loving. He's talking all about what it means to be patient, what it means to be kind, what it means to be generous. He's talking even about treating our enemies well. And right in the middle of all that, Paul says this. He says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it for the wrath of God. For it's written... Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so we imitate Christ when we entrust God to judge rightly and justly. It's good and it's wise. It's even loving to pray imprecatory prayers. The Lord is righteous. He's righteous in salvation and he's righteous in wrath. Now, the specifics of this prayer show us what God's judgment means, what God's judgment looks like. A lot of the imagery here about God's wrath is echoed throughout the New Testament, particularly on the lips of Jesus. Uh, First of all, you see here that God's judgment brings shame. May all those who hate Zion be put to shame. Because God's judgment exposes evil for what it really is. It reveals what evil really is to ourselves and to other people. Sin is something embarrassing. It leaves us morally and cosmically naked. Second, you see that God's judgment brings defeat. Verse 5 says that God's enemies will be turned backwards. They will fail to conquer God. They will fail to conquer his people but rather they're going to be forced to retreat. They will be forced to submit to God and his purposes. And third, you see that God's judgment brings futility. You see that in verse 6 about the grass growing on top of the roof. The idea is that the wicked are like grass that quickly pops up in the thin layer of soil on the flat rooftops of the ancient world. In a way, that grass so green and and spry up there. In a way, it seems lively. It seems important. It's way up there, up high, above everybody else. But when a dry, hot, sunny day comes along, it all withers away. Unlike the crops that are growing up slowly in the field and are later harvested and put to good use, 
uh, rooftop grass is ultimately useless. It's futile. It's a flash in the pan. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. The point is that as powerful and as permanent as evil people and evil institutions might seem to us today, under the searing heat of God's judgment, it will all turn out to be powerless and useless. It's what we mean when we say a car is totaled or a house is condemned. This is what all the biblical language about God's wrath bringing destruction and death means. It does not mean that God annihilates people, but rather that the damned will be forever wrecked. Finally, verse 8 shows us that God's judgment brings isolation. The psalmist prays for God to cut the wicked off from everything good about relating to God and to other people. He says, may those who pass by not say to you, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Because you see, at its core, sin is the desire to live life and to find blessing on our own terms instead of on God's terms. Every sin says to God, I know better than you do what's good for me. Sin alienates us from God. And as it alienates us from God, it alienates us from each other and from the world, even from ourselves. Already in this world, but especially in the next world, God's judgment means that he says to us, fine, do it your way. See how it works out for you. One day God will finally turn away from everybody who insisted on turning away from him. Jesus says that going to hell means God throwing you into what he calls outer darkness. The idea there is that you are far from God's blessing. You're isolated. You're alone in bitterness and misery. Jesus says being out there in the out of darkness will be a place of weeping and grinding your teeth angry. It's a heavy, sad prayer in light of a heavy, sad world. The Lord is righteous. He's cut the cords of the wicked. He will cut the cords of the wicked. He's righteous in saving the humble and he's righteous in punishing the wicked. Jesus speaks and demonstrates all of this more clearly than anybody ever has. In the end, nobody will be able to accuse God of being excessive or negligent in his dealing with evil. To sin against the holy and perfect and glorious God who made everything we have and everything around us, to sin against him is the greatest injustice in the universe. It rightly deserves eternal death. But this psalm reminds us that God's judgment is just. He will give no more and no less than what is deserved by all of those who have rejected him and rebelled against him. All those who have said to him, I know better than you do. Psalm 129 shows us that God's compassion and God's wrath are both perfect expressions of his goodness. They're both perfect expressions of his love. So entrust yourself to him. 
He's the one who in Christ has come to save all those who depend on him. Jesus, having taken the horror and the judgment of our sins upon himself on the cross, saves us from the oppressions of the world and of sin and of the devil. And then having risen from the dead, Jesus is God's judge of the cosmos. The Father has appointed him to carry out his justice both in this world and in the world to come. And so shouldn't we trust him? The wisest, the strongest, the meekest man who's ever lived. On our pilgrimage through this valley of the shadow of death, we don't have to despair. The Lord's righteous. He's cut the cords of the wicked. Let's pray. Father, as we look back upon the first coming of your beloved son Jesus and forward to his second coming, we are sobered and humbled by the reality of sin and evil. Sin and evil in our own hearts that rightly deserves your anger. Sin and evil in the world around us. Father, humble us under the weightiness of sin and evil. But even more than that, draw us into the joy of knowing that you are a merciful and forgiving God towards those who put their hope in you. Help us, Father, to see in Jesus a humiliation and an exaltation that reveal your righteousness, your righteousness in saving and your righteousness in judging. Teach us to trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.